millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. For eight centuries, Great Britain and Ireland together comprised a united kingdom. Seventeen years ago, Britain yielded to the 26 Catholic counties, set them up as the Irish Free State. But Protestant Ulster, loyal Northern Ireland, remained within the kingdom. The 3rd of May, 1921. Northern Ireland is born. Ireland, as it was to that point, is partitioned. Most of the island becomes the Irish Free State, but Northern Ireland continues to be a part of the United Kingdom. That satisfied the Protestant Unionist majority. But from the beginning, Irish nationalists opposed partition and continued to advocate that Northern Ireland be dissolved into a united Ireland. As British observers look for signs of lessening Ulster antagonism towards the Free State, they weigh her economic arguments for and against joining the Republic. That campaigning continues to this day. But what's the case for Northern Ireland to continue in the Union? I invited Lee Reynolds, a former advisor to Arlene Foster, a former director of policy for the DUP, and the man behind the Vote Leave campaign here in Northern Ireland, to make the case for the union. So, Lee, let's start from the beginning. Just to contextualise this, can you tell us about yourself and your background and your motivations? Um, let's see. Uh, born and raised in Coleraine, housing executive estate, Bally Sally. Um, passed my 11 plus, got to go to grammar school, decided after five years I didn't particularly like grammar school. Uh, too many middle class people I didn't like. Uh, so I went to tech because I wasn't sure if I wanted to, wanted to go to uni. Went to uni, went to Queen's, um, got involved in Ulster Unionism uh, when I was at Queen's. Um, came out of Queen's, started working in the community and voluntary sector. Um, stayed involved in politics just on a voluntary basis. Um, then 2003, so I was involved in the Australian Party with various activities. Was in the no camp in the referendum in 1998. Um, then left the Australian in 2003. Um, didn't switch to the DUP then. What I did was mess about in Slugger O'Toole for three or four years where I used to write under the nickname Fair Deal, um, which actually proved very healthy for me because um, people who previously wouldn't listen to me were reading my stuff and liked it um, and then sort of going oh that stuff fair deal was very sensible and then after about two and a half three years I was finally outed that it was me um, so it wasn't like oh he's become sensible um, so then 2007 I joined the DUP um, shortly after St Andrew's agreement then about three years later I got a phone call um, from Nelson McCausland to say um 
Peter and Nigel have been talking. Uh, they want to reinforce the headquarters team. Um, would you work for the DUP? Uh, and I did. I went and joined them. I think the nominal title we made up was Director of Strategy. But that was largely because there was already a Director of Comms and Director of Policy. And then for the next 10 years, I floated around with slightly different titles, but I ended up as Director of Policy. Um, in between that, I took three months off. No, was it not three months? Two months off to run the Vote Leave campaign in Northern Ireland. And then about November 2020, uh, Arlene asked me to become one of her special advisors. So I went into the castle in the middle of COVID uh, and all that was being trying to be done to handle and deal with that. And then when Arlene left as First Minister, I went too. And then I've sort of wandered around, finding myself working in the real world and uh, keeping my hand in politically, writing the odd thing and doing things like that there. Let's pretend, I suppose, that the last 100 years, maybe, let's not get too bogged down in it. Mm -hmm. Sell me the union. Um, the union as an idea, economically, socially, culturally, politically, environmentally, offers the best deal for someone living in Northern Ireland. Um, it enables you to be, be a part of one of the largest economies in the world and the protection that that affords and protection that we've seen put together proactively both during the COVID crisis and now with the energy crisis. Um, socially, the institutions that we have got here, um, the protections we have here in the United Kingdom are amongst the strongest in the world. You then have culturally the United Kingdom, both as sort of the brand of Britishness and then also the diversity within it is one of its deep strengths. And then environmentally, when you're actually looking at the major environmental challenges that the world is facing, the UK is actually a leader. In the issue of climate change, we are a model for other countries and we are one of the more successful Western countries in our transformation. We're not complete, but certainly we are uh, uh, moving the way forward. Um, so that's, and then politically, you have probably the best system in terms of division of powers. You have a national government with its range of powers and then what can be del devolved locally, delivered locally and shaped locally is happening as well. So that's the sort of package of it all of why Northern Ireland being part of the UK. You've uh, sold me the union in a secular sense. It's not as if you have appealed to the argument, as many would, that Northern Ireland is and was a homeland for the Ulster Protestant people and therefore must be maintained on that basis. You have not used that argument. That I don't know what your view is in that argument, but it's certainly, you think it's a union for all. Yes, and that to degree is a caricature. And it's also back to a bit of a misrepresentation of what happened. I know we're not talking about what happened 100 years ago. We're supposed to be talking about it. What, Ireland wasn't partitioned you had a double secession. Ireland was seceded. We were allowed to secede from Ireland. Um, you know, so it wasn't somebody came along and done it. It was all, there was a democratic basis for the various decisions that were made around that. Um, and that sort of stems from it. There are various quotes. Now, there was a coincidence, yes, that basically behind those democratic majorities, there was a religious underlay. That's historical fact. That's a social fact. Um, that does not mean that the idea of the union is for that, solely for that, and its only function can be for that. It just isn't. It's a much bigger idea than that. I noticed too that you spoke of a Britishness which was all-encompassing. 
uh, a wider view of Britishness. I just wonder, is, does that Britishness, can that go as far as encompassing people who are considered Irish and consider themselves Irish and, and their cultural baggage which comes with it? Yes. It has done and can do. And you're saying that against a backdrop. I said I wouldn't talk of the past in terms of a cultural war of annihilation, really. In terms of, if I look at, for example, one of the smaller uh, parties, for example, the TUV, and perhaps continuing on from policies the DUP had, I mean, that is blanket, total and complete opposition to any Irish Gaelic culture whatsoever. Well, this is where you can run any risk whenever there's, so, you know, when you have two ide- ideological clash full on, that everything then gets that ideological war applied to it. You know, we're living in now the 21st century, which is being shaped by the culture wars. And you see that as well. You know, it was basically um, that people, you know, it's become that if you believe this, then on this other issue, you must believe this, this and this. Um, and, you know, it's it's trying to herd people into tribes and you sort of have to sort of push against that. And that's interesting. I just want to, I suppose, go on to a question which I had for later in the podcast, but now I think we've touched on it. Perhaps it's my fault. You know, it's the argument has been made that constitutionally Northern Ireland remains part of the UK until a majority says otherwise. That's just a fact. But the, their argument has been made um, that that also means culturally British because that's what cult, you know constitutionally acceptance means. So that if you've signed up to to accepting the union, you must have signed up to, in the context of that constitutional arrangement, that you know Ulster and Northern Ireland will re- remain British, not just constitutionally but also culturally. And I say that with the backdrop of of the culture wars that have, we've talked about. Now, I, I mean, I mention these things because the case for the union. I don't think the case for the union and the reality of the union can be can be separated from those culture wars. Well, in that, I think you get into the tension of basically. Should it be, you know, is Northern Ireland British? Well, yes, the decision is made that it's part of the United Kingdom. And should that therefore enable the expression of Britishness within Northern Ireland? Yes, it should. That doesn't mean that it's only that, nothing but that. And I think the tension we've had since 1998, and I think it's the great error in the process, um, that I think we would be a much healthier place and a healthier society if this hadn't happened. But I think within a broad cross-section a cross-section of unionists if they're the the expression of Irishness and Gaelic identity growing in Northern Ireland wasn't an issue or wasn't or was something that basically yes it's going to happen there's going to be change and that's going to be part of the change but it was the coincidence of that rising and then asking for removal of aspects of Britishness I think that was much more the source of the tension um, to some degree if expressions of Britishness have been left alone and the process of empowering Irish happened, then I think we'd be in a better place. But we are where we are. We are where we are. And one of the parts of we are where we are is, and again, I have to stress, this is my question. You haven't brought up, you've sold, as I said, the union as in a secular circumstance. But the reality is that it is. it remains a truth that the vast majority of people for a Catholic, from a Catholic background vote for parties which advocate a united Ireland and the vast majority of Protestants vote for parties which have, which uh, continue to advocate for the union. There, there, have been, there have been converts, 
But we could almost name them. Yes, we could. Um, but I would actually say that you're still you're stuck in a bit of the old paradigm. And if you actually look at what's happened electorally in the last 10 or 15 years, um, the politics that I grew up with, I'm not sure of your age, but I'll risk it and say, and politics you grew up with, um, was basically very much the two tribes, the two sides. Um, but it was also, that was the politics of push. You know, we had violence and we had a conflict going on. There was a push factor to you stayed with who you were within because the other ones wanted to get you. Um, you know, it, that's a massive oversimplification, but I think you understand the point. Um, and that's ended. It isn't so much the politics of push now, and we're into the politics of persuasion. And also, there's a chunk of people in Northern Ireland don't want to be part of the old conversation. Um, they don't like labelling themselves as unionist or nationalist. They don't like them labelling themselves as British or Irish. Um, and that's where we're now sort of a Northern Ireland of two conversations, um, where there's about two thirds of us still very much the old conversation is it the UK, are we joining Ireland? And then there's a new sort of group in the middle who are basically saying, um, yes, that's all very good. A referendum will sort that out. Um, what Northern Ireland am I going to be living in? So politics, it would be wrong to present politics as unevolving. Uh, and that group is coming from people of all backgrounds. You sound like a centrist, not a former DUP policy director. Um, there's more to unionism than me. You know, in your point about culturally, cultural Britishness, I'm culturally British. You know, I'm a member of the Orange Order. I go on the parades. I put a flag on my house. But I'm not the sum total of unionism. And when, now, I'm going to get into something quite crude, I suppose, then, because we've we've had a sophisticated conversation, if we want to put it like that. We're talking about this middle ground, etc. In terms of demographics, it must be a concern for the union. No. No. It needn't be. It's a case of it's, um, the union is not limited to religious identity. The idea of it, the concept of it, the value of it. Um, have we done a good a job, as good a job as we need to do in articulating that and communicating that and promoting that, yeah, I'll take that as a genuine criticism. That's a problem. But you can't guarantee on the numbers. You cannot guarantee. I, I, well, that's the thing the of union. Well, I don't think you can guarantee any outcome on the numbers. The par old paradigms of you're born into this, you therefore believe that, and you will therefore vote this way, isn't what it was, and that's true. There's, there, there's a bit of a thing when some of these things change, when there's societal change, it immediately goes to, this is a problem for unionism. Um, well, no, it's, it can be a problem for nationalism as well. You know, it's the, the desire not to be identified with either is a fact, not just one. Um, so it's the linear thinking of the past of you're this, you will then vote that way and then this will come, has broken down. So the politics of the cradle isn't going to shape, isn't going to be the deciding factor of Northern Ireland's future, in my opinion. And I'm also old enough to remember, you know, it's um, on the whole demographic argument. I can remember being told when I was at Queen's that, oh, uh, there would be a Catholic majority by now. There isn't. You know, so the predictions of the future um, cannot often not be true. 
And yet demographics do change things. I mean, you must, you've been involved in politics in Belfast, for example, and Belfast has seen, well, I suppose, slow demographic change. Uh, but in Belfast, just 27% of people living in, the, uh, in Belfast identify exclusively as British. Uh, I'm throwing I'm throwing these things out here. Um, stats, I suppose, well, the proportion of Catholics remains the same, actually, at 49%. The number of people who consider themselves Irish is 35%. We can go on and on and on on these, in the, in the, in these figures, and we have. But it does, it will be presented by nationalists as a case for changing the nature of Belfast. Um, and that's, you know, what's that got to do with the case for the Union? Well... I suppose what I'm trying to get at is, and to, to paraphrase Alex Kane, maybe you can't keep people happy, but maybe you can stop them being angry with you and, and being unhappy. Well, there's, it's any, any campaign, it's multiple audiences, and it's those who manage to motivate their supporter, supporters most and demotivate their opponents at the same time is mostly the, the most successful strategy. Um, well, I would say one minor thing as a former Belfast City Councillor, uh, we'll say two things. One, the boundaries of Belfast City Council aren't really Belfast. Um, and secondly, the and what actually it got overlooked, unsurprisingly because of the flag vote, if you actually look at the reimagining of Belfast City Hall and what was done there with all party agreement, um, I think it's actually a positive model that gets overlooked. Um, and that was in pretty rough times that we came to that agreement. Um, and But... It ultimately reached an all-party agreement on what we we're going to do with the building. So there's potential there that shows it doesn't necessarily turn into a confrontational thing. It doesn't have to turn into, you know, this side's got more, that one's got less. If you work through the issues, there's potential for agreements and, and positive things. You know, I was able to get endorsement from my own party and from the other unionist parties because I was able to show them that what we were concerned about was actually going to be presented better. It wasn't that we had just been kept to, you haven't lost anything. It was actually, we've been in part of this bigger package, we've been offered something better than what we've got at present. Now, those of uh, Irish nationalist perspective, we're getting offered something better too. You know, and it's, it's how you construct these things. It can be worked through. If you, if you want to turn, uh, you know, I've been involved in politics. If I want to turn turn something into zero sum, I can turn it into zero sum. If I want to, you know, remember the, I got training from a guy in Canada around negotiation and mediation. And he always said intent is one of the most crucial factors. If you go into a room not wanting to make a deal, there's no deal going to be made. One of the selling points and you haven't brought it up, I'm bringing it up, just to stress that, for the union, and you even hear it in Irish nationalist circles, and you know, Sinn Féin will even bring it up, has traditionally been the NHS, that the NHS was this absolutely incredibly brilliant thing. It's really, really hard to use the NHS as it's in a state of collapse in Northern Ireland. And certainly, I have to say, I've experienced the health system in other parts of Europe, this is only my personal experience, and I know people from other parts of Europe who are here, and they've just seen nothing good in the NHS. And so I'm just wondering, would you be worried that the future of the NHS, as, that, this, that this thing which attracts people from all backgrounds, as it just deteriorates, 
or, or at least that's how we're told. That's that's what we're displaying in the media. Would you be worried about that for the for the union? Well, this is where someone who's been around devolution uh, and all the devolution parties, if you want to find a core source of the problems of the NHS in Northern Ireland, the failures of the you know, it's not so much the United Kingdom isn't so much to blame for the problems of the NHS in Northern Ireland. So much devolution is. Um, you know, we literally spend the most per capita in any part of the United Kingdom and get the lowest levels of service. You know, that isn't the responsibility of Westminster. That's a responsibility of the Northern Ireland Assembly. We've had plan after plan after plan to reform and we didn't do it. You know, and so this is where you have to take some of the responsibility for things yourself. And on now, recognise there's problems in England and Scotland and Wales. Scotland, like catching up with us in terms of not being so good but again SNP's in control of the, most of the NHS almost all of the NHS in Scotland now and for all its troubles you probably find the best performance in the NHS in England controlled by the national government so but in the case of this is the thing of it's it's reformable it's fixable we can move it on and then you're into the secondary issue of this of basically and what's the alternative to the NHS you know do you want to pay to go and see your GP? Do you want to have to go and pay uh, whenever you go to the emer- accident emergency? Do you have to try and prove your eligibility for a medical card? You know, so there's two arguments of not just of what we have and what we've got, what can we do with it, but in terms of um, whether Northern Ireland's abolished and becomes part of Ireland, um, what's the alternative then? You mentioned campaigns, etc. And you obviously have been involved in a huge campaign and you won it absolutely. And that was the Brexit campaign. The UK has left the United Kingdom. It's not maybe as cleanly as you would have liked it, but y- you've got what you wanted. No. <laughs> <laughs> Northern Ireland got left behind. Okay. Or partly left behind. So so you would like a harder Brexit than you would like, you know, in terms of Northern Ireland? No. And again, that's, that's harder as pejorative. It's basically, I wanted a different relationship with the European Union. Do you not accept, and clearly, you, I mean, I, I assume you're going to say no, but that for nationalists in the middle ground, and this middle ground that you've talked about, a lot of that middle ground are very pure, pro-European. Um, chunk of them are, yes. But the interesting thing is whenever you go through the polling data, um, they're still in a referendum pro-UK. And the other thing I would say that there's... Um, there's a bit of an undercurrent to this of you've done something to annoy me, therefore I will retaliate by doing something to annoy you. This is what you value, so I will threaten what you value. Um, and it's understandable human behaviour. It's what we tend to, tend towards at times. But follow the logic of this. You're unhappy that the UK has left the European Union. And that has caused, uh, has impacted your life in a number of ways, which is the source of your annoyance. But your response is to say that you would then go and vote for something which will have impacts negatively on your life times 50 in comparison with Brexit as revenge. That's where that line of argument falls down. And that's why you haven't seen fundamental shifts in if there was a referendum tomorrow, how are you going to vote? Um, there's, I, I get the anger and I get it, but it's ultimately cannot be fed into something. And it's interesting. It's also why. But you're willing to. It's risk also why nationalism is trying to keep the discussion about Brexit and not actually about the others. 
But you you were willing to take that risk. You know, you, you felt well, you see, had the numbers for the union that you could you could risk alienating people further. Well, this is where it's got very interesting for me in terms of and the impact, particularly social media and other things, on politics. Because twenty sixteen was only was really when it was having its coming out party. And it was there was and it's it's what's you know, if you actually find out what is the major dysfunction now in Western democracies, it goes down to this core issue of the consent of the defeated. Democracy only works if those who lost basically go, okay, we lost. Um, that didn't happen with Brexit. And then what actually, for me, in the story of 2016 to 2022, the problem wasn't so much in 2016 with the result. The problem was 2017 because you then got what I call the nothing parliament trying to implement it. And it was basically you had a parliament that would agree to nothing. Hard, soft, medium, you know, parboiled, whatever you want to call it, um, basically. And that was where the whole process became much, much more difficult, much more chaotic, and ultimately for Northern Ireland, uh, harmful. And in 2022, you know, basically in 2016, that wasn't foreseeable. That shift in politics, that result that a huge swathe of the political class wouldn't want to abide by and implement the result. And that created a whole new series of politics, a new type of politics, a new approach to politics, and a depth of division in politics that in 2016, I'll be honest, I wasn't expecting. I take your points that I do take your points, but I do I do feel I mean I'm sure anyone listening will will say that I have to point out that the majority of people in Northern Ireland voted to remain in in the European Union. You're going to say, well, the UK as a, as a whole voted to leave, of course. Um, but it does it does. Well, I, mean, it, I, I would I would make this point, and this is what people there's a danger in that line of argument, and for a place like Northern Ireland where we've made clear and we've all agreed that a referendum will decide our future. And that is, if you come along afterwards and don't like a result and create a sub-geographical area, is it healthy for us to go, here was a UK-wide decision, oh dear, it's went the wrong way, we're declaring that we're out of it. Apply that to Northern Ireland referendum. You know, so, okay, so we have a referendum, the union wins, but you have eight constituencies that voted to leave. You know, you're precedent setting there which in our society I would say isn't is, has a longer term danger and that we all get hot, head up and we all get dragged into things and we all start you know we're going to use this argument we're going to use that argument sometimes we have to take a step back and going what's the longer term logical consequence of that argument and the danger of that argument well I would feel obliged to point out that Northern Ireland itself being six counties and not nine counties was again a retraction of a I suppose a, an, an older so we're always talking about, you know, these borders and the people make the borders that suit them. Well, on that, I would say it was there was an agreement. This is the thing that's also forgotten about 1920. This was, this was agreed. There's been a lot of nationalism trying to go, oh, this was this and this, but it was agreed. Both sides agreed. But now one side tries to present it wasn't agreed. It was. The Doyle voted for these things. You might not like it, but it did. Can I, can I, I would also point out that it's a thing of, and it's where I find it a bit, someone who takes an interest in sort of historical things and, uh, you know, 
siege of Derry and no surrender. The creation of Northern Ireland was a compromise. You know, this is the thing of, you know, it's the portrayal of unionism and uh, how it's put forward and even how it puts itself forward. The creation of Northern Ireland was a compromise. I thought, well, <laughs> and what we've had is people trying to renege on the compromise. Yes, well, how long should people remain defeated? I mean, once you're defeated, I mean, in democracy, how long do you, how long are you defeated for? Is it, is it for, is it for a year? Is it for a generation? Is it for four hundred years? So, I mean, how long do you have to? How, for how long does the victory last? Until you can convince the majority, democratically. So therefore, you continue to campaign. So I mean, that's. Oh, I don't. I'm not objecting to democratic campaigning, but it was the way the Irish government, well, the Irish, you know, the Irish government reneged on the deal. Um, you know, for all their complaints about the UK and EU deals, Irish government's been happy to do it in the past. Um, but it's also the, it's a case of it's the attitude of the approach the Irish government took. Then there was those who didn't pursue democratic means. And that leads me on very naturally, I think, into the arguments over the protocol, etc. Because that can't have been the case for the union and the and, and the protocol. They, they're now intertwined, and it's a very complex subject, etc. I mean, and that leads us into the DUP. I mean, it's been put to me now. I, I asked for some advice around this, and some people said, you know, the argument over the, the protocol, it could be good for the DUP, but it could be bad for the union. Explain. Well, I mean... The DUP's hard stance over the Northern Ireland Protocol, that has seen a rallying in the DUP's support in the current trajectory. There's no doubt about that. Jeffrey Donaldson's on to a winner there. However, day after day goes by and Stormont still lies moribund and nationalists perhaps are moving on from Stormont and they're now looking to what comes next. That... Maybe nationalists don't have the power to affect the future of the union. Probably don't. But it doesn't seem that we are coalescing into a shared future here. That's where I think you have to look at the substrata. And what you have is voters are pro-devolution. You know, it's, the DUP has a particular fundamental problem it needs to deal with, but it wants to get back to devolution. You know, that's why they've been clearer and clearer of this is our one issue, solve them one issue and we're back. Um, then if you actually look at the recent pattern of nationalist voters, 2019, nationalist voters punished Sinn Féin um, in the Westminster election and it was because devolution wasn't up and running. Um, so there's, if you look at the voters and what they want um, and politicians can have some freedom of movement and some prioritisation and you can have also the uh, cognitive, cognitive dissonance of voters where they believe two things at the same time which aren't necessarily easy to reconcile um, but it's basically the fundamentals are we are in a post-agreement generation where the majority of voters in essentially all sections of society want to see devolution back up and running again now that said they're also pretty confirmed it's a bit naff when it's running um, and I think that's the secondary challenge that we also have to have a conver serious conversation about, about it being underperforming uh, and how that's not good for us. You know, if we've got the powers and we've got the means to do things, we aren't doing enough with those for the prosperity of Northern Ireland, for the benefit of everybody, the success of Northern Ireland. The DUP's 
the largest unionist party by a, a, by a country mile. Yes. So I feel justified in saying that perhaps the fortunes of the DUP and, and the union, yeah, they're not absolutely, you know, the one. Yep. No matter what some people in the DUP may think, of course, naturally. But they are, they are closely related. Of course they are. Do you think that the BUP have made mistakes over the past couple of years? I mean, it's been a mess since, oh, since you left. Um, <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> you're, you know, you're, de- you're definitely too kind. Um, well, I mean, let's, let's look at the whole leadership thing. It was, it was unbelievable, really. Um, although there may be things going on in the background that, in the DUP that political journalists weren't, weren't... I mean, it can't have helped the union. Or maybe it was irrelevant. There's, this is back to what I said about how the paradigm has shifted. And that is neither the, the historical thing of the, you know, the Ulster Union. You know, back in my day, it was, you know, the Ulster Unionist Party was it, you know, and the fortunes of the union rose and fall with the Ulster Unionist Party. The Ulster Unionist Party was replaced and, the you know, the United Kingdom ruled on regardless um, you know, people can overinvest in institutions and they can overinvest. What the challenge for those who are pro-UK in Northern Ireland is that the politics has shifted, that there is what I describe as political unionism, those who go out in Assembly, Westminster, local government elections and vote for a unionist party, and then there is what is referendum unionism. 30 years ago, those were almost exactly the same thing. Now they're not. So what are we going to do to maintain that referendum lead? And then the secondary thing is, and you know, so that's what those who are pro-UK and Northern have to think about. How do we reach that? How do we grow that? But then that also lays down to the challenge to the range of pro-UK, pro-union parties. Why are you underperforming? If I can show that you should be at 60% and you're at 40%, then something needs to change. Well, I would suggest my final question was this, and maybe this leads on naturally. Well, my second from final question. I mean, do you think a time may come, therefore, that unionism, that unionist parties have to choose between unionism, that is, as a collection of communal interests represented by the DUP and UUP, etc., and the union as a constitutional ar- arrangement? Do you think that unionism may be at, at the point where, staring into a referendum, they think, hmm, Maybe we have to stretch ourselves here and to stretch ourselves for the union, and maybe some of the constitu- some of the communal interests and battles that we fought for with all our soul for a hundred years, maybe we will have to stretch ourselves out, and of course, nationalists would be in the same situation. Um, I don't necessarily see it needing to come to that, and it's basically, but it's the thing of it's any referendum would be won on a coalition. So those who are culturally British will be part of that coalition. Those who are coming to it for other reasons will be part of that coalition. Um, And it's basically, it's making sure that it's basically that one bit of the coalition is not given the monopoly. That's your challenge uh, around all that. As I said, it's basically, it's, I am culturally British. I engage in all these activities. Uh, I'm happy about these things. I'm also involved in Ulster Scots various degrees down through the years because we're an Ulster Scots family from North Antrim and North London there. You know, so it was all just, and I spent my entire time in an education system which only mentioned Ulster Scots twice. Um, once by my PE7 teacher and once by my 
third year history teacher, you know, and here was all the stuff I was getting at home that I wasn't getting in the system. Um, you know, so there's that, but it isn't, that isn't the entirety of it. That's the key. That there's more to the union to the UK than that. And it's what people buy in for. It's a friend of mine who's creative type, he has this lovely line of, you're building a city with many gateways. And that's our long-term success. It doesn't mean that you close one gateway or you shunter off one part of the city because it's going to be a bit difficult. It's managing a coalition, which is difficult, but it's managing a coalition, what you have to do. Because it's very much that, you know, you're not going to uh, maintain the levels of referendum support we have by just basically going to your largest present section, sit down, shut up and never say anything, you know, and also completely and utterly surrender all your interests. We have a coalition to build, we have a coalition to manage, but nobody gets monopoly, would be my advice. Well, final question then. The, the, we have seen the formation of the UK Together Foundation. Is your former boss, Arlene Foster, the right mm-hmm. person to lead that coalition then? Or part of it even? It's a case of it's, she's, well, put it this way, the United Kingdom as a whole needs an ecosystem which is campaigning for it. Um, someone has shown the initiative to go off with others and create something and do something. Um, and she's done it. You know, I, I, I've always looked at this, I've always followed the line in politics and maybe why I was unsuccessful. I've always rather preferred to be condemned for doing something than doing nothing. Arlene Foster had her, you know, leftist first minister. Her political career could have been over. She could have just went goodbye and good night. She hasn't. She believes in something. She wants what she believes to succeed. And she's gone off and built something. So more power to her. And it's all part of the ecosystem, I think, that we need to build to build the coalition we already have, maintain the coalition we have, and ensure that my grandson and your grandson will have the same interview in 100 years' time. Lee Reynolds, that's the case for the Union. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. The clips you heard were from British Pathé and the BBC. When you get an Irish independent digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. For a limited time, you'll also receive a €75 O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish independent. Terms and conditions apply.